137th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, episode number 53. And on tonight's episode, today's episode, whenever you listen to this, on Wednesday, uh, I've got some special guests lined up. Because Presto and Steve couldn't be on today, they couldn't join me because they had a lot of stuff going on. And I kind of, uh, screwed the pooch a bit because that's a perfect little pun of sorts. It's not bestiality, but it is uh, dog related. I have been ill for the last week because my darling, beautiful little puppy, three-year-old Shih Tzu, sneezed on my face a week ago. And I had my mouth open and my eyes open and I got the full brunt of her sneeze and I made the joke, uh, oh crap, I think I'm going to get sick. I think Luna probably just gave me the puppy flu and Shayla called me an idiot and told me there's no way I could have got sick and almost 24 hours later, last Thursday night, which would be the 22nd, I noticed the left nostril of my nose plug up at almost exactly midnight and then progressed to get yeah, progressively worse, sick, you know, my nose stuffed up. And I went into kind of a weird viral-induced stupor and literally kind of forgot what day it was and what the heck was going on. And yeah, got kind of a sinus infection. And I would describe it to be akin to if somebody took a five-gallon bucket and tossed in an angry hornet's nest and then had the cojones to then throw in a bee's nest full of drunken bees and then put the lid on that puppy, shake it up, and then dropkick that son of a bitch down a mountainside that's how my head has felt the last two or three days. So pretty sure I've got the puppy flu. And I'm not sure if that's a real thing or not, but I would I would assume if an animal uh, sneezed in your face and said cute little shih tzu puppy um, maybe had a viral body or a foreign body on their nose and rocketed that into my eyes or mouth, I may have gotten sick, so if anybody has irrefutable proof one way or the other, feel free to text me, call me, message me, email us, whatever, and let us know your thoughts, because of right now, I'm pretty sure I have the puppy flu. But fear not, guys, because like I said, I have two very special guests tonight. So along with me... In the passenger seat, I have myself. And in the back seat, I have I. That's right, guys. Tonight's episode, today's episode, will be me, myself, and I. 
Yep. It is a solo show with just me because, like I said earlier, I forgot what day it was and realized, oh, it's Monday night around 1130, and I really totally forgot to make an episode. I was so uh, sick and delusional that I forgot to set up the recording, so here we are. But I don't want to not give you guys an episode because I know it's the total shits whenever it's Tuesday and I'm waiting for the Boogie Monster to come on and maybe they forgot to post an episode or they were delayed by a day or maybe it's Thursday and Bizarre States um, had something come up and I'm like, man, my weeks are kind of made. And sometimes, you know, the tone is set by knowing that Tuesday morning it's the Boogie Monster and Wednesday it's whatever I listen to and Thursday it's Bizarre States, whatever. Insert your favorite podcast here. And when those podcasts don't show up that morning on your way to work, you kind of get bummed out. And I don't want to we, – we don't want to do that to you guys. So I've put together kind of a a solo show. So I would like to say that if this was a Star Wars movie, it would be the origin story of Sean Solo. Thank you. I'll be here all night. Yeah. So it's me. I'm by myself and I'm so lonely. But have no fear because I've got some stuff coming your way, guys. So it'll be kind of a short one, but please buckle up. It will be a lot of fun. And first off in the news, viral disease related, um, coincidentally, the same day that I got sick with the said puppy flu, a CDC employee left work 10 days prior and has not been seen since. And what that basically means, guys, is the CDC is the Centers for Disease Control, kind of an important place to work. And a guy named Timothy Cunningham, a 35-year-old worker there, scientist, uh, disease specialist, went to work on February 12th and left that day uh, sick and went home. And the Atlanta Police Department says he has not been seen or heard from since. Cunningham who studied at Harvard University, uh, the School of Public Health, is a commander in the public health service and has been sent to respond to such public health emergencies that include the Ebola virus outbreak, the Zika virus outbreak, among others. And they said that everybody's kind of worried because the guy has just disappeared. As of the 22nd, he has not been seen or heard from. His parents said that they went uh, to his house to check on him after not seeing or hearing from him for a while. And they discovered his phone, his wallet, his car, and the keys, as well as his dog at his house, but no sign of Timothy. And they said, it's not the type of news you want to hear. 35 years old, but he's always our child. This is an appeal to the public, his dad says. We're seeking your help in bringing Tim back safe. The CDC says our thoughts are with his family and friends during this difficult time, and if anybody has any information, they are urged to call 911 or the Atlanta Police Homicide-slash-Adult Missing Persons Unit at 404-546-4235. So that's kind of, it's interesting and it's kind of scary at the same time because obviously the guy works with a lot of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, terrifying diseases, the Ebola virus, the Zika virus, everything else. So this is kind of a big deal. The guy just straight up 
disappeared. So who knows? Um, I have not checked on an update about this story, and I will for uh, episode 54. When we get the band back together, I'll try to have an update about this, but um, kind of a scary thing, man. If you're around all those diseases and you go home sick, it just sounds like straight up out of a horror movie. So I don't know. Hopefully uh, hopefully by now, uh, Timothy has been found or uh, they have more leads on what exactly happened. But uh, yeah, we're pulling for him and thinking about him too. That is some pretty uh, freaky business there. So, well, along with me deciding to do a solo show for you guys, I got to give a quick shout out to uh, friend and listener Tyler. I won't give the last name because we like to give people some uh, anonymity here, but um, Tyler really saved my bacon on this episode because I really wanted to throw in one more uh, news story and see if it might actually kind of fit with my main story I wanted to talk about. And man, Tyler, like a knight in serendipitous armor, showed up and really just uh, served this thing on a silver plate to me. Um, almost like a head. He almost served a head on a silver platter to me. Uh, because Milan Fashion Week says models carried fake heads on Gucci catwalk. And, uh, yeah, this is something straight up out of a, uh, again, a horror movie or maybe the Twilight Zone, but Gucci models walked down the runway at the Milan Fashion Week show carrying, uh, it says cradling, replicas of their own severed heads. Now, there's no blood or gore or anything else, but they are indeed walking with exact replicas of their own faces down the runway. Fake heads were eerily accurate down to the hairstyles and expressions of those walking in the show. Oh, it's so strange. Yeah, um, we're going to, oops, sorry about that. <laughs> Unprofessional. Um, I will post this on the show notes so everybody else can see it. But yeah, you've got a guy here with long, beautiful red hair going down his shoulders, wearing what looks to be a dream catcher around his neck and a houndstooth Oh, man, plaid jacket. And he's carrying what looks like his own head. Oh, God, what if it's his twin's head? Creepy. And then there's also another um, blonde woman walking down the runway with what appears to be a rejected tablecloth from 1963 along with a picnic blanket from Christmas. And she is also, oh, God, you guys got to see this, carrying another replica of her own head. Whew doggies but yeah the strangeness doesn't end there because gucci's creative director also sent models down the catwalk cradling baby dragons snakes and one girl actually had a third eye in the center of her forehead that's kind of neat and i guess they set the actual stage up to look like a surgical theater um, like an operating theater complete with tables surgical lights among other apparatus. And Alessandro Michelle says that the heads were intended to represent the struggle of finding your identity and looking after your head and thoughts. And yeah, you got a girl here who's carrying a baby dragon and also a maybe that's a milk snake and then all sorts of other interesting things. And if this is what high fashion is, consider me under a rock my god yeah our, he says our job is a surgical job cutting and assembling and experimenting on the operating table 
He wanted to show that among the chaos and creativity in his job, there was also order and a, quote, scientific clarity of his work. Oh, God. Oopsie nuggets. I just dropped my phone. So, yeah, quite interesting. And, Tyler, thanks again, dude, because that kind of takes me right into the main topic I want to talk about, which is uh, a story involving severed heads, as morbid as that might be. Because I have come across the, I guess you'd say, infamous tale of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, uh, which happened in Cleveland, also known as the Cleveland Torso Murders. And it's something I've been wanting to talk about on the show, and I know it's not necessarily paranormal, but as you know, our intro says by presto, we are the guides to the unusual and strange as well as paranormal stuff. And this story is indeed very strange, and you may have heard of it before, you may not have. But basically, this tale takes place back in the 1930s in the U.S. in Cleveland, And in the 1930s in the U.S., if none of us paid attention in history, that was kind of a big boom time for, like, the steel industry. And you had, you know, a lot of people coming out of that first recession and the Great Depression and, you know, steel and oil and everything else was still on a giant um, rise. And Kingsbury Run in Cleveland was an old riverbed area where trains ran through Cleveland, I think, up to Chicago and some other places. It stretches all the way from the flats to around East 90th Street, for those of you who understands where that is. But Kingsbury Run was kind of a popular place for homeless camps and crime because it would, you know, people could jump the train. Um, whether they were in Cleveland or wherever, and they could just ride the train from one town to another, getting away with a lot of, you know, dastardly deeds. And what is quite strange about this is that would also make things very easy for a serial killer to travel between cities, killing, dismembering, and dumping bodies in various places. So, quick trigger warning, if you are not a fan of true crime or dismemberment or beheading or other dastardly, nasty, nastardly things, you may turn this off. Um, I will save some of the gory details here, but not too many because I don't think we're going to get too in-depth. But uh, yes, this may not be for the faint of heart. Okay, here we go. So, in 1934 in September... A man walking around Lake Erie discovers half the body of a young woman washed up along the shoreline of Euclid Beach, just east of Cleveland. Her legs were cut off at the knees, arms and head were all missing. After more searches, they found more parts of her body, but her head was never found. So this basically sets the stage for this ongoing, um, I guess you'd say terror that struck a lot of people and a killer running wild. So unfortunately, the woman I just talked about was never identified. Nobody could find her head. And back then, I mean, fingerprinting wasn't, you know, at its height. So they simply called this woman the Lady of the Lake. And she's what we're going to call Victim Zero because she was only uh, unofficially included in her victim count of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury or the (laughs) the Terso, the Torso Murders. 
A year after this happened, a couple teenagers kind of mucking around found the body of a 28-year-old man at the bottom of Jackass Hill, also on Kingsbury Run. This was pretty close to the Roaring Third, um, a pretty low-life part of town, a part of town where a lot of people are drinking and and gambling. Um, Prostitution was quite common. Um, A lot of other just, you know... um, what do you want to call that? Low life activity, unfortunately. But, you know, those were the times. These guys are running around the bottom of Jackass Hill and they come across the body of a man, but his head was severed and he was also missing his genitalia. Ugh. Yeah. So he was later identified as Edward Andrassy or Andrassy. Um, known to be a bisexual man, which is neither here nor there for our story. I mean, for our podcast, rather, we could care less. But it might be a little important to the story, so I'm going to keep that in there. And he had a criminal record for somebody who was regularly involved in the roaring third part of town. And some people speculate back then, because a lot of people were pretty narrow-minded, that his lifestyle may have been to blame for his murder. But police were already off to the wrong start because they just said, yeah, the guy basically was into a lot of weird kinks. And, you know, that's his own fault. You should pretty much just stick to the way things should be and you wouldn't get caught in trouble, which, you know, that's a pretty big lie. I think, um, you know, of course, people were pretty narrow minded back then and not too accepting. But um, another thing they thought was strange and why cops really didn't bat an eye is not too far from Andresi's body, police found a second male body, also missing the head, and also missing his genitalia as well. Um, this man was not identifiable, but they basically said, oh, well, these two guys must have been lovers, got into a tussle, or somebody must have got pissed off at both of them for swinging both ways, and they were both murdered and mutilated because basically they didn't go against, you know, the traditional norms of man and woman. They may have been interested in some other things that were a little bit um, off-putting back then. So they just said, yeah, shouldn't have been doing it. It's your own fault. And they wrote it off as just a uh, potential sex crime. And they pretty much moved on. However... If you fast forward then to the early 1930s, <laughs> see, I still got those drunken hornets in my head. I almost said the early 1936s. Uh, in the early part of 1936, a woman was walking around the Kingsbury area and she heard a dog barking uh, like it had found something or or treat a possum or something like that really got her attention. So she follows the sound of this dog barking and she makes her way to just outside the heart manufacturing building in Kingsbury. And she discovers several baskets full of body parts. And these body parts were wrapped up in butcher paper, the same way, you know, a butcher would have wrapped a good choice cut of meat back in those days. Um, other parts were found nearby the lot, and it was determined that this victim was a woman. And much like the previous victims I've mentioned before, the cause of death was decapitation. Her fingerprints were identified, and she turned out to be a woman by the name of Florence Polilio, or just known as Flo. Um, she was a woman that leer, uh, yeah leered, maybe leered, maybe lingered, a woman who lived near the roaring third part, 
you know, again, that kind of low-life area. And she worked as a waitress and also a working girl or lady of the night. So although Flo had once had a husband and a nice life, at the time of her death, she was reported to be an alcoholic, unfortunately, who was in and out of very abusive relationships. And the killer could have been one of her boyfriends or potentially clients. Or did someone just spot her as an easy target, i.e. our killer? At this point, police weren't really putting any of these murders together. They're just like, yeah, who cares? It's down there in the, you know, the bad part of town. And if you didn't want to die, you shouldn't have gone down there. Case closed. Let's go get, the, let's go get some coffee and some meatball subs. At this point, since we don't really have any other victims um, whose cause of death was decapitation, investigators finally start to put it all together. And they think, wait a second, this is very odd. Why would all these people be killed in the same way unless we had a <gasps> serial killer? But we didn't have the word serial killer back then. We just had coincidences. But um, these guys finally start putting their heads together and compare notes and think, holy crap, we might just have one person doing all these different things to these different people because it's all actually the same. Holy crap. Who would have thought? So, the next month after this, a girl found the body of a headless man. Again. But this time, a couple things were different. First of all, this was the only body found on Cleveland's west side. I guess supposedly Cleveland, um, from the sound of it, was split up into a very east side and west side. East town, west town. Secondly, this murder, there was blood found on the ground where his body was discovered which means he may have been actually murdered on the spot. And see, these other killings, what was interesting is there was no, you know, mass amounts of blood. It's almost like they had been murdered and uh, butchered somewhere besides where the bodies were found and then transported to the area. And we'll get to that again a little bit more here in a minute. Investigators agreed that it was still the work of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run because of the telltale decapitation, and it was performed with the same level of expertise. They start putting together some notes and thinking, man, these are actually very well-calculated cuts, so to speak. And a couple months go by, a homeless man discovered half a torso as he was trying to hop a train in Kingsbury, there was a crowd of onlookers as police then set divers down to a nearby sewer. And in the sewer, they discover um, the other half of a woman's torso and her legs. And again, um, oddly enough, the head of the poor woman was never found. Thus, she could never be identified either. And this starts to become the M.O. for this guy, because back then, of course, like I said earlier, we don't really do too much fingerprinting. We rely mostly on dental records. So it is all too easy for this guy to do what he wants. And no one's going to notice because, again, a lot of these victims are singled out from this really nasty, dastardly part of town where people go missing and they fornicate and they do drugs and everything else. So... Holy crap, guys, we're starting to have a theme here. Now, at this point, um, there's no real motives or suspects. I'm sorry, <laughs> there are motives. There are no suspects in the Kingsbury Run murders, and none of the clues were turning into solid leads. And, of course, this starts to instill mass hysteria in people in Cleveland. 
and these people are freaking out. Um, the newspapers are reporting on the topic almost daily. People are on the edge of their seat with bated breath waiting to see, you know, if another body's been found and where it was and was it close to their house? Was it down the street? Was it literally in their backyard? And doing what they do best, the newspaper, uh, no disrespect to newspaper folk, uh, the newspaper gives this killer the nickname the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Because unfortunately, guys, if it bleeds, it leads. And we need a name to put with this specter, uh, this phantom, and people need someone to actually be afraid of. And, of course, that's what they did. People started locking their doors. They got uh, really scared to leave their homes, especially by themselves. And um, there was a positive note to come out of this, guys. Um, speaking of dogs, that's <laughs> that's going to be our theme, I think, is dogs, unintentionally. Uh, the population of large dogs increased. So people started giving some big dogs some homes to feel a little bit more protected. And this is where we enter the famous detective, Elliot Ness. And he becomes more involved in this case, um, in fact, full time. And according to the Cleveland Police Museum, the department had interviewed somewhere around 5,000 people or more about the case, including um, their tips about every individual crazy neighbor that they had, every village idiot, every strange hobo down the street. Basically, if you sneeze the wrong way or side-eyed somebody, they would call the police or the newspaper and say, oh, I was Gary Smith down the street. And one day I was walking by and I noticed he was licking his lips and he kind of winked at me a little bit. I bet he's the killer. So with all this speculation and all this finger pointing, there was one potential suspect that came up because a woman came to the police one day and said, I know who killed Flo Palilio. That's right. A woman thinks she actually knows and fingered this. Well, ugh, bad joke. She put her finger on the guy that actually killed Miss Flo. And it was a guy by the name of Jack Wilson. Wilson was a local butcher. And this guy was known to be a sodomist. And a side note, sodomy was something that was very common with a lot of these victims, too unfortunately. And this guy, this Wilson fella, also carried around a large butcher knife with him. Coincidentally, Jack Wilson was also a suspect in the Black Dahlia case in LA, but we may cover that again later. That's a very famous case. A lot of folks know about it already, so I'm not going to stretch this out and talk about that as well. So in February 1937, part of another woman's body was found washed up on Lake Erie uh, on the shores of Euclid Beach again. And what's strange is the bodies, they weren't really necessarily all killed and dumped in the lake, but it's more likely they probably actually washed into the lake from the Cuyahoga River, which flows through Kingsbury and dumps into Lake Erie into the area known as the Flats. And during that time of year, of course, it would have been easy for someone to have dumped a body in the river as cold as it was, froze the river over. And then, of course, as it thaws out months later, those bodies could transport it down the river and then dumped into the lake and then bada boom, bada bing. These people could have been actually um, murdered months before being discovered. And it took a couple months for the victim's body parts to wash up on the shore 
And she was again never identified. Again, common theme. Although she was decap although she was decapitated, her cause of death was unknown because the because because the coroner declared that her head had been removed after she had already been killed. So after she was dead, the head was removed post mortem. Oop, damn, there we go again, guys. Look at my manners. That summer, a teenager was uh, skulking around under the Lorraine-Carnegie Bridge, and she discovers a human skull. Not far away from the skull was a bag full of much more bones. And again, these bones were wrapped up in newspapers from the year previous. So this person had probably been murdered at least a year beforehand, and then the body parts dumped over there and never discovered. Police used the dental records to unofficially identify this person as a Rose Wallace, um, which would be what they call the first African-American victim. Um, she was a young um, African-American woman. So um, I don't know whether that's really here or there, but they do make a note here to say that most of the victims beforehand were all white or Caucasian so this shows that maybe our actual Mad Butcher didn't have a certain type that he went after, but um, just kind of selected them, picked them, and choose them uh, whenever he could find somebody. A month later, our Butcher strikes again. A security guard working by West 3rd Street Bridge uh, discovers on his shift a body floating down the Cuyahoga River just below, wouldn't you know, Kingsbury Run. If you're keeping tabs, guys, this would make our ninth victim of said butcher. So up to this point, police really didn't know what the hell is going on. They had been investigating a lot of leads. Any crazy lead they had, they would chase down, which means basically every guy who had a lazy eye or um, even some women. See, on a side note, this is what was kind of strange. Back then, guys... Um, sexism rears its ugly it's ugly it's ugly head too because there ain't no way no woman could have done these murders it would have had to have been a young strapping 30 something white male who probably slaughtered hogs for a living so basically every crazy guy with a lazy eye was being uh, interviewed and put on the stands basically because he could have been the killer um, <laughs> also one in particular person who was uh, put up on the chopping block, so to speak, was a man who would hire prostitutes to strip naked and then chop off the heads of chickens while this guy sat in the corner and I'll be coy here would jerk his McGurkin. <laughs> um, yeah. So again, a weird butcher that I, I would put my money on that guy. If you enjoy the company of a nude woman hacking off the heads of chickens while you're doing your thing solo, I'd say you might have the potential to be a murderer. And guys, again, if this is your thing, I'm not saying you're crazy. I'm just saying that is a little bit off-putting. But not even the crazy chicken man turned out to fit the full profile of the Mad Butcher, and the police eventually said, oh, I guess he's not our guy, but you are a sick, sick individual. And then, like a lot of our killers, especially back in these old days, police started to focus their attention on doctors and men of the medical profession. <laughs> and the guy who wrote this article says, I really hope they kept the chicken man locked away because that's pretty sick. 
I do agree. So then they found a new suspect, a Dr. Frank E. Sweeney. And give me a second here, guys. I'm going to take a little sip of this green tea. Green tea that I'm drinking from my Hotchatime Beaver's Bend State Park camping mug, the one that I mentioned on the previous episode, has Bigfoot on it. Yeah, that's right. I bought this mug because it's got a sweet, sweet graphic of a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot roasting a marshmallow over an open flame. And if that wasn't reason enough to buy this mug, I don't know what was. Dr. Sweeney fits the profile almost perfectly. This dude was a surgeon. So that means he'd have the knowledge and the skill and the steady hand and expertise to cut up bodies just as skillfully as they had been done. And it's oftentimes said that, you know, back then especially, doctors were nothing more than educated butchers with a little bit more prestige. This dude really fit the bill, though. He was tall, strong, capable of carrying bodies to the Discovery locations. He had grown up in the Kingsbury Run area, and he had his office there during various times. But he had his own closet full of skeletons because the man had a drinking problem and an anger management problem that matched, especially when he drank, which led him to lose his wife and kids, pushing him over the edge as well as losing his residency at the local hospital. So maybe the guy lost everything and just couldn't take it anymore and started doing his own little drunken hack and slash and, uh, quote, surgeries to take out his frustration. His drinking suspiciously, suspiciously heightened at the time of the discovery of the Lady in the Lake or our Suspect Zero. He also had a family history of mental illness. Unfortunately, um, his father spent the last of his years in the hospital for schizophrenia um, and was worsened by alcoholism as well. And there were some rumors that um, Dr. Sweeney was a bisexual himself which would be why he may have mutilated the genitalia of our other two male victims because he couldn't quite take, um, he couldn't quite deal with himself and he was upset with himself, so he took it out on these young men, unfortunately. Um, but there are two problems with accusing Dr. Sweeney of the torso murders because he was the cousin of a U.S. congressman, which caused some uh, feather ruffling, so to speak, when Mr. Ness did some investigations. And basically, the guy had an alibi for well over half of these murders, saying that, oh, yeah, he uh, he was out of town when that happened. Or, uh, yeah, he wasn't anywhere near there. He was with me. But um, even though they said that he was near Sandusky, Ohio, that's just on the outskirts of Cleveland. So again, traveling back and forth by train could be relatively, relatively easy. In March 1938, a leg was discovered in a swamp in Sandusky, Ohio. And Dr. Sweeney, of course, was questioned and... While he was supposedly doing some time in the veterans hospital and rehab in that area, a lot of other patients noted that he would dip in and out of the hospital quite often. A lot of times he would just disappear for a couple hours here, a couple hours there, and nobody seemed to notice except for a couple of the patients. 
But when the patients would speak up and say, hey, where the hell's he going? You know, the nice doctors would just say, okay, nice lady, take your medicine. Okay, little guy, go ahead and just take these happy pills because we don't know what the hell you're talking about. So witnesses claimed that they had seen the doctor leave a lot. And then another witness comes forward and says, yeah, I met the doctor in a bar in Cleveland once. And the doctor asked me if I had a, the hell was that noise? A penny. <coughs> oh God, I'm dying again. Maybe I just coughed up a penny. A penny just fell from God knows where onto my keyboard. <laughs> that, that's really bizarre. Where in the Sam Hill did a penny come from? It's from 1973. Oh, that's weird. So, sorry, back to it. Um, a witness came forward again in an unrelated story saying that the doctor met him at a bar in Cleveland and asked him very strange questions while they had a few drinks, like, where are you from? And if he had a family. And of course, we all know a smart killer does some research before he chooses a victim. No family, no nearby home, you're just here on vacation. Yeah, I think I might probably kill you. So, although Dr. Sweeney was a prime suspect, the leg found on the swamp turned out to actually be from an actual surgery done at a nearby hospital. Wait. How the hell does a leg still end up in a swamp? I don't worry about it, guys. Uh, it wasn't Dr. Sweeney. This leg belonged to a surgery we did, and we just tend to dump the body parts in the nearby swamp. The next month, they found another leg in the Cuyahoga River, and then they found more of the victim's body parts in bags another month later. They belonged to a female victim, but again, she was never identified. So pressure starts to mount on this subject, and Elliot Ness finds um, that he has one goal in life, that is to find the killer. And some time goes by, and things start to kind of settle, because, well, things got quiet. Elliot Ness turns on the pressure, the killer must have backed off a little bit, and things start to get kind of quiet. So... They think, hey, Elliot Ness made the public statement that, by God, I'm going to find the bastard who's doing this. And listen here, Mad Butcher, I'm going to get your ass and put you in jail because, damn it, I'm going to make the city safe again. So the dust settles and things get quiet and people kind of get comfortable again. They think, hey, he's cleaning up the streets. Um, he's focusing on mobsters and bank robbers and everything else. And maybe things are okay. Maybe, maybe he scared away the butcher and people start going out at night and people start going grocery shopping by themselves and everything's hunky dory and white picket fences. And then two more bodies are discovered. So these bodies were dumped right in the middle of downtown Cleveland, located at East 9th Street and Lakeside Avenue. And where were these bodies found, guys? Because Big Mr. Big Mouth Elliot Ness said, by God, I'm going to figure out what the hell's going on here, and I'm going to save this city. Well, he taunted a little bit too much of our butcher, and the butcher decided to say, well, here's a bright, shiny middle finger. And he dumped these two bodies outside the office window of Elliot Ness's office. Um, <clears throat> now, there's actually no proof that these bodies were victims of the same killer because there's a couple things to note. Um, first of all, this was a pretty big dump site, so there were a lot of coincidences just outside City Hall. Blah, 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 blah. That part's going to get cut out. One body was full intact, meaning they were just killed. 
And what's strange is all the other victims were decapitated, and most were dismembered or chopped in half. The other body, however, was just skeletal remains of a man in several pieces that were scattered around the dump site. And, of course, you know, it doesn't matter if this was killed by the butcher or not, the town goes nuts and makes a big old stink. So, this really rubs Elliot Ness the wrong way, because why the hell wouldn't it? So he does what any good police detective would do in his case, or Batman, or any other, you know, caped crusader, and he decides, fuck it. He takes to the shanty towns, also known as the area where all the homeless folk live, you know, their campsites and their lean-tos down in Kingsbury Run. He takes a bunch of police down there with him, arrests everybody, and catches their whole camping area on fire. Holy shit. That's right. Um, he just gets a bug up his ass and says, screw it, and burns down the entire housing development, in air quotes, and arrests every single hobo or homeless transient in that area. My God, you would think his reputation at that point would skyrocket because of such a bold move, and it didn't. Because at this point, uh, Ness's reputation and his life were going downhill way fast because you're making a lot of promises there, Mr. Elliot, and you ain't catching shit besides a lot of heat from the people you swore you'd protect. In 1939, the county sheriff arrests another suspect known as Frank Dolezal, or Dolezal, or whatever, and they link Frank to the murder of Flo Palilio. He lived with Flo for a while. He was her roommate. And there are also links between this guy and Edward and Rose Wallace. So Edward Andresi and Rose Wallace. Well, there's no solid evidence that this bricklayer was the killer. So this guy must have been a mason or, well, not like Preston, but a bricklayer. There's no solid evidence that he actually was the killer, but he did confess to the murders. So there, bada-boom, bada-bing, case closed. But that's not quite the truth, because it's believed that he did indeed uh, confess to the killings, that's court record, but they're pretty sure that Elliot Ness's Cleveland police force beat the shit out of him and forced him to confess to the murders. And to further prove that, he actually hung himself in his jail cell before his official trial. So... I don't know, split decision, 50-50. Did he hang himself because he couldn't take the burden of knowing he didn't actually kill the people, but he finally actually admitted to it? Or did he kill himself because he couldn't take the burden of knowing that he'd been caught? Now, at this point, Ness says, shit, and he goes ahead and revisits Dr. Sweeney as a potential suspect. Now, he tries to set up secret interrogations with Sweeney because his congressman cousin, uh, you know, couldn't help but keep his fingers in the pie and kept uh, interfering so much. And Dr. Sweeney said, I'm hip to your tricks and began to taunt Elliot Ness and the police during his interviews. And he fails a lie detector test, which to me should be a nail in the coffin to, uh, yeah, dude, you're probably the uh, butcher. But... It's not enough evidence to convict him of the Cleveland Torso murderers. So eventually, Dr. Sweeney checks himself into a hospital in Dayton, and he supposedly stayed there until 1964 when he died. 
And this is a coincidence here, guys, it should be noted. Although, when he went to this hospital, the murders did stop. He says, Elliot says, Elliot Ness says, he continued to get cryptic postcards saying weird things. And so he was quite certain, 100%, in fact, that Sweeney was indeed the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Because he did receive a lot of strange uh, postcards, like I said before, with weird messages. And one of these messages says, You may rest easy now, as I have moved out of sunny California for the winter. The writer said he had murdered those people for science, and he had gave a location where he buried a head in L.A. Now, they never found anything in this area specified by the writer of the mysterious postcard, but in 1947, they did find the body of Elizabeth Short, better known as the Black Dahlia. And the coincidence here I'll touch on is the Black Dahlia's body had been mutilated and chopped up uh, in half, similar to the way the Cleveland torso murders had been performed, although with some, you know, differences And there were also six more similar murders in the area in the year, which may have been the same man, or they may have actually been copycat killings because because of the fame around the Black Dahlia murder. So, again, we're going to focus our attention on Jack Wilson because the Jack Wilson name comes up in both the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run and the Black Dahlia case, but it's not really known whether or not it's the same man, only the name Jack Wilson. And we know Jack Wilson, as mentioned before, was a local butcher, and he loved to carry that big old fucking knife with him for whatever reason, and we know that he was into sodomy, which may have attracted him to his uh, victims. And one woman, again, had come forward earlier in our story and said to police she believed Jack Wilson had murdered Flo Palilio. So in L.A., Jack Wilson... um, Also, strangely enough, had an alias of Arnold Smith, among others, wasn't named as a suspect until a long time after the Black Dahlia murder. So, I don't know a whole much more about that, although um, police interviewed Jack Wilson and said that uh, they really considered him as a suspect back in like 1981. So, that's kind of a strange deal. They waited a long time from that, so... There we go. These torso murders supposedly were never actually solved. Um, People don't know. Was the killer the same guy from L.A. as the guy in Cleveland? Was our Mr. Wilson traveling via train all the way from Cleveland to California? Uh, I don't know if a train went all the way there or not, but maybe. Um, The one thing that people think actually was going on, the main theory that a lot of people have put together is there may have been two killers working together because it's a lot of work for just one person to do, although they were very well educated about processing and butchering meat and they had a keen knowledge of the train stops. So again, that's theory number one. One guy doing all the murders, and he would just take care of business maybe at his butcher shop, wrap the parts, hop the train, and then drop those parts off about 20 miles away. And he could have many different areas and just discover that Kingsbury was the perfect dumping ground because of how disheveled and decrepit that part of town was. But um, 
The other theory I'm thinking and a lot of people are leaning towards is there were more than one killer and Dr. Sweeney was the main guy and he may have just roped somebody else into it because of how uh, interesting this was. So basically Doc Sweeney finds somebody with similar interests and takes them on as a young apprentice. And as the boy got older, he then took over the mantle and maybe he knows there's a guy named Jack Wilson in Cleveland and decides to use that identity because it fits the bill perfectly. So people are thinking that potentially old Doc Sweeney, old mad butcher Kingsbury Lane, potentially, may have trained a guy, then went off and quit killing on his own. You know, he himself quit killing. And the young man then went on to do the Black Dahlia murder, among other murders in the area. So... There you go. I don't know. It's a fun story, guys. And the case kind of runs cold at that point because we don't really have much more to go off of after that. And I mean, there are probably several cold case file shows and there are tons of different uh, movies you can watch and books you can read and articles you can read. And like I said, I left a few tiny little pieces out. Um, there's a part about how Elliot Ness had found a guy's head or a victim's head, and he was just up to the point where he was so fed up with eluding uh, – uh, the, the butcher eluding him. He actually makes a death mask of the head and mounts it on a pike and sticks the pike in the middle of town square so people can come by and basically look at the head and say, oh, yeah, I recognize that person as uh, a way of hoping to maybe identify one of the people who had been murdered. Um, another story I read, another version of that story is, um, he didn't make an actual plaster casting of the head, but instead he actually put the whole head on a stick and mounted it. And apparently the death mask, I think is still in one of the police museums in that area in Cleveland. So I don't know, kind of an interesting deal to look at there. And, um, I don't know. Do some reading on your own. See what you find. If you find some more information or other uh, clues, let me know. Shoot me a, shoot me an email or message us on Facebook. But um, yeah, again, guys, not very paranormal, but bizarre nonetheless as uh, the infamous Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Lane. So that'll be a good place, guys, to stop things. Um, Thank you for joining me, myself, uh, by myself, my first solo show. All oh, the boys will be so proud. But yeah, just wanted to give you something to listen to. Um, that is one of my, it sounds morbid, it's one of my favorite um, cold cases just because of how strange it was. And I just think about the time that it happened and just, again, it sounds morbid. It's not me being a sick individual. It's just me thinking like just that kind of terror to plague people. It's just insane. You know, I imagine this being made into a movie and uh, Elliot Ness is being portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio. I think that'd be kind of interesting, but yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things. Of course, you don't hear of a lot of that kind of stuff going on these days because forensics um, are so much better. But um, back then, man, I can't imagine that's the scary part is a, a person could probably get away with that so easily because of just the lack of technology and the lack of the know-how by some of the police back then, man, it's, I, I don't blame Elliot Ness for going pretty, pretty nutty. Um, they said one of the final victims of the mad butcher was actually Elliot Ness himself because 
in a lot of stories I read about this, it kind of ruined him in a way. He kind of became uh, an alcoholic of his uh, own doing and never really forgave himself or let go of the fact that he couldn't actually crack that case. So they deem Elliot Ness as the final victim of the Mad Butcher, saying that he ultimately took uh, Elliot's life, not necessarily in a uh, on-the-nose murdery way, but just took away his you know livelihood and his gusto, so to speak. So I don't know. There you go, guys. There you go. So I'll end it there. And as always, check out Big Steven and Brady's podcast, Oh Indeed, where they talk about various video games and some other, you know, pop culture goodies that they are interested in. Please check out our good friend Mark's podcast, The Pixelated Sausage Show. He talks about different movies, uh, TV shows, stuff he reads, anime he watches, all sorts of good stuff. The guy's got a long-running show, and he's... uh, He's the man behind the curtain here for our show that does a lot of good work for us and a lot of the uh, heavy lifting, so to speak. And as always, if you have a beard, if you want to grow a beard or know somebody who does one or both of those things, please check out BigDobsBeardBomb.com. He has some fantastic beard products, seven, seven, seven different flavors, including a bay rum and a sweet tobacco that are two pretty big heavy hitters right now. Those are my uh, my two favorites. But check it out. He's got beard balm. He's got oil combs even and soap. So please, if you think there's something on there you want to get, let us do you a favor and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your entire order. So not only do they have fantastic beard care products at Big Dobbs, they also offer 20% off by using our promo code. So check them out. You may find something you like. I bet you'll find something you love. And with that, guys, thank you so much for joining me on my own solo show. I'm so lonely. And I hope you have a great Wednesday or Thursday or whenever the heck you listen to this. And catch us next time around. We're going to jump into some interesting stuff about a, quote, paranormal alien ghostbuster. And there's going to be some unique ties to some of our uh, taglines from our show in there. The guy doesn't know us, but by God, we may be connected in one way or another. So check us out next time, guys. Thank you again so much for joining me today. And we will see you down the paranormal highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. You have two ways. One, email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we have that set up too. Dial us at 707-523-4263. Again, that's 707-523-4263. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and... The Strange.